Good morning. We're in a new series starting this morning. We're back in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be in chapter 8. If you're not there already in your Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and open up your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 8, and we'll start there in verse 1. And as we have started this new series, it's entitled, Jesus is greater because when we look at the next two chapters, chapters 8 and chapter 9, really what they are doing is giving an, an authentication, authentication of chapters 5, 6, and 7 that we know as a Sermon on the Mount. Because when we read the Sermon on the Mount, as Matthew gives us uh, the record of Jesus giving these teachings there. On, uh, on a hill on the side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, we recognize that Jesus is giving some pretty hard teachings. Right. I mean, we look at it, we're saying, hey, you think that uh, murder is the standard? Here's the real standard. If you ever hated someone in your heart, you're a murderer. Right? You think the standard is adultery, and that's the sin? Have you ever lusted after anyone in your heart? Like, that's the standard of adultery. And so Jesus is giving these very authoritative teachings and uh, one might ask, who has the authority to tell me that that's the standard, right? And you actually see that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when uh, the people were saying, you know, who is this man who speaks with such authority? And so we find out just who that man is when we begin looking now as we open up to chapters 8 and 9, why he can say what he says because of who he is and what he can do. And so really, as we're looking at chapters 8 and 9, we're encountering the authoritative power of Jesus that is authenticating His message, which we should not forget that anytime we're reading the Gospels. Because if we're not careful, what we end up doing when we read the Gospels is we read it like a superhero book. Jesus went to this place and healed that person and went to that place and, and, and gave that person their sight and, and helped that person walk again. And that mute person can talk. And, you know, that demon-possessed man is now cleansed. And we, we make it about a superhero and not about what those actions were meant to indicate for us. And that those actions and those miracles were meant to indicate to us that Jesus is who he says he is. I mean, that's really what we should understand when we look at the miracles of Jesus. Is they're saying, hey, this man, there's substance to what he's saying because all of those people, and we'll get into it a little bit, at least when we look at the, the leper there in the first four verses, we must understand that the miracles were not the point. And here's why. Every person that we see in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, that was healed and that was delivered, eventually got sick again, eventually died. And so if we're saying the miracle is the whole point of Jesus' ministry, then we have to say, well, it wasn't such a potent ministry after all, because after all, all these people who went to Jesus for life died at some point later in their life. 
And so we must, if we're going to be Christians who are, are thoroughly biblical and who have, a, who have a reasonable and biblical understanding of who Jesus is, we have to say these miracles were wonderful. And they're a testament to who Jesus is. And they're teaching us much more about the fact that there were people healed in Scripture. They're teaching us something fundamental about what Jesus came to do. And that is to save us ultimately from the root of all those things, which is our sin and the things that defile us before a holy God. And we see one of those scenes, the first scene in verse 1 here in Matthew 8, as Jesus is encountering this leper. And I trust that what we'll learn this morning from the leper as he encounters Jesus is that it takes a humble response to the authority of Christ if we want to receive the mercy of of God. I, mean, I hope and I trust as we've read at least this far into the Gospel of Matthew, we, we've understood that. We get to the Beatitudes and we read the Beatitudes. Who are the people who receive uh, the, the kindness and the, and the patience and the care of God? Who are the people who receive the, the earth? Who are the people who receive the kingdom of God? Who are the people that get to see God? It's all of those people who are willing to, as they look at their life and they do a little introspection and they look at Christ, they're willing to say, I need to humble myself. I need to submit myself to the Lord. And it is that humble response that that Christ requires. It is necessary. And I mean necessary uh, because there isn't an uh, infinite um, assortment of ways to receive God's mercy. Look at me. Because this is something I think would be helpful for us to learn on the front end of this. There isn't an infinite assortment of ways to encounter the mercy of God. As a matter of fact, God qualifies much of his mercy in Scripture. I mean, a lot of it. I mean, he tells us a lot. Here are the people who aren't going to receive my mercy. I mean, there's whole lists in Scripture. You see it in the Pauline epistles. You see it in Revelation. Jesus tells you, hey, there's a lot of people who aren't going to receive the mercy of God. There's swindlers, the revilers, the sexually immoral, right? Uh, there's a lot of people who think they're going to receive the mercy of God, but who end up not receiving the mercy of God. I think of uh, the rich young ruler. Right? I've done a lot of these wonderful things. And this is what the rich young ruler is saying. I've done a lot of these great things, and I follow the Lord. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're missing something. Sell all of your things, give it to the poor, and come follow me. What was he really telling the rich young ruler to do? Humble yourself before me and thus receive my mercy. And the rich young ruler said, that's the one thing I can't do. And Jesus said, then that's the one thing you're not going to receive. So there is a lot of ways that the Bible does qualify who indeed receives the mercy of God. You read the Beatitudes. If those are the people who receive the mercy of God, then it stands to reason logically that those who do not live according to the Beatitudes, who aren't uh, defined by the Beatitudes, are those people who what? Don't receive the mercy of God. And so again, this uh, pericope here, this teaching of one through four, talking about the leper, gives us the picture of what Christ is looking for and what humility looks like toward Christ. And so I want to encourage you. I hope that at least I've convinced you enough to put your eyes on the text with me this morning. I want you to look at verse 1 as we study what humility toward Christ must look like if we are going to receive the mercy of God. Verse 1, when Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, right, really behold, pay attention. Right here's, here's where the action starts. I need you to pay attention. It's what, uh, it's what Matthew is saying. Behold, a leper came to him. Now, 
you may just be quickly trying to get on to the point of, uh, of this teaching, but in order to get the point of the teaching, you can't skip over the fact that a leper approached Jesus. Because historically speaking, this is a striking situation. Uh, lepers were not allowed to approach anybody. As a matter of fact, this was against the law. It was illegal for a leper to approach anyone. So it already says something. It's pretty amazing here. Uh, when uh, the first two verses tell us that a leper has come to approach Jesus. I mean, Leviticus 13, 45 through 46. You can jot that down. I'll read it for you here. Leviticus 13, 45 through 46. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip like this and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease because he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. I mean, this picture of a leper is, a, is an archetypal picture. It's supposed to show, hey, all the lepers kind of look like this. So it was, it's to do two things. The leper needs to recognize their place in society, and society needs to recognize this is what a leper looks like. They're going to have really messy hair, uh, they're gonna, they're tor- their clothes are going to be torn. They're obviously going to have a lot of maladies. They're going to have a lot of uh, open sores and stuff on their body. And from far away, you should be able to look over and see them. And once you start getting near, they know the drill. Cover your mouth and you yell, unclean, unclean, I am unclean. So this is the life of the man that we're talking about right here. And so it is remarkable, given the Levitical law, given the societal norms of this Uh, of this setting that we find Jesus and this leper, that we have this leper who says, you know what? I am desperate and humble enough in in my situation to go to the only person that tells me they have authority to fix the problems that I have. And so I'm going to, against often my societal judgment, things that society tells me to do, I need to go to the one who can fix my problems. And so, he goes... And he kneels, is what verse 2 says. He, he knelt. That's the Greek word proskuneo. Now, here's why that's important. Now, there are a couple of words here that are going to be really important in, in this matter. One, knelt, proskuneo. It, it can mean two things. Okay? Knelt can mean, proskuneo can mean kneel, which is just to kneel in, in respect to someone. But kneel or proskuneo can also mean to worship. And so we have to, as the reader, understand a couple of things. In the immediate context, of course, we assume the leper doesn't know much about the deity of Christ, but what he does know is this man can, can heal me, and this man is someone of esteem that I need to honor. Now, but you also need to understand there's another audience here. There is the audience of uh, the leper, the crowd there as they're coming down the side of the mountain there in Galilee, but there's also the audience of Matthew's audience, his readers. And so Matthew, is he's curating the entire gospel of Matthew, he's proving a point about who Jesus is throughout the 28 chapters of Matthew. And he's saying, hey, this is the Messiah. This is the King. This is the one to whom the Abrahamic and Davidic promises are fulfilled in. And he's the one, ultimately, that we see in Matthew chapter 1, 21, that says that his name shall be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. And so you got to remember, this is the point of Matthew's gospel, is to show people that Jesus is the Messiah, the one to come to save people from their sins. 
And so we must, as we read this, say, yes, I recognize that the leper is kneeling most likely in great honor towards a person who will have authority over him. But ultimately, what we need to understand is Matthew is begging and and pleading and, and causing the reader to look at this and say, wait a minute. When we say proskuneo, we know as Christians that we're, we're called to worship Christ. Right? The leper kneels because he wants to be healed. The Christian worships because they have been healed. And so therefore we worship and our kneeling is both in reverence toward who Christ is, but ultimately because of who he is and what he's done on our behalf, for he is the next word there that we need to pay attention, Lord And so this leper, he goes and kneels before Jesus saying, Lord, kurios. Okay, this is the same thing. We have to deal with this word the same way we dealt with the word previous when we dealt with the word knelt. Lord can be a a word of honor and respect. Uh, You actually see this in old movies where they say, good evening, my Lord, right? Good evening, my Lord, right? They, they weren't calling them God. It was just a, it was a title of respect and honor. However, as Matthew is disseminating his gospel and as it's circulating around the, 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 uh, the, the Middle East at the time and into Asia Minor and uh, then into Europe and, and North Africa and so forth, it, it comes to the attention Uh, of all of those who are reading the gospel, that Matthew is expecting us to make an implication here that Jesus is a man that is deserving of much more than just our respect and reverence. That he is our Lord in the proper sense of he is our king and he is our ruler. And so as the leper here is kneeling out of respect and kneeling and calling him Lord out of honor for who Jesus is, uh, this begs the Christian to understand when we kneel and we call Jesus Lord, we're saying much more than he can, he can make me clean. We're saying that he is the king of the universe, the one who's come to save us from our sins, and we will worship him. And then in a great act of humility, as he's knelt and he calls him Lord, he says something that I think Christians need to begin saying much more in our own life when it comes to the things that we talk to God about. And he approaches him and he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Did you notice something? The leprous man didn't demand that Jesus cleanse him. The leper didn't go just speak the name of Jesus and just say, hey, in the name of Jesus, heal me right now. And he says, Lord, If it is your will, if this is your desire in my life, I know you can make me clean. He wasn't goading him. He wasn't compelling him. He wasn't coercing Jesus. He was simply saying, if this is your will, I know that you can make me clean. You see, Humility, which is a, a perfect picture of humility as we look at the leper approaching Jesus, is paramount if you want to approach Jesus. Any of us who want to approach Jesus, it can't be, it can't be a coercive, it can't be, well, this is what the Lord better do for me because of who I am. It should be, Lord, if you will, that as I worship you, and, and that's the perfect picture here, Lord, I worship you, I proskineo, I kneel before you, I worship you, you are my Lord, and if you will, you can do this thing. 
in my life. If it's your desire, you can do this thing in my life. Quite different than an American Christianity that I've been raised with, and one I'm afraid that we've all been dealt in this culture, of just speak the name of Jesus into it. Right? You need to speak it so it'll happen. You need to manifest these realities so these things will happen in your life. It's not what the leper did, and it's not biblical Christianity. Even more so, the arrogant, the prideful, the greedy are people who also aren't going to receive the mercy of God. I mean, a person who cannot, when they would beseech the Lord for anything, cannot kneel and call on the name of the Lord for who He is, and then, in great deference and humility to God's will, say, God, if this is your desire, do this in my life. If not, then, then you can leave me as I am for your glory and for your good purposes. Because ultimately, it is not the temporal situations in my life that are of ultimate matter and value. It's how I deal with the temporary situations in my life with an eternal perspective, knowing that you're going to use everything in my life for your glory. And my life is but a shining beacon in this culture, in this world, to point people towards your glory and towards the good that comes through Christ. Whether that is in my suffering or in my healing, that I'm going to recognize that I have a part to play in this, and that part to play is not a coercing Jesus, at least in your own mind, to try to get Him on your page. It is us getting on God's page and seeking His kingdom and trusting His goodness, in His mercy, in His kindness, whatever the situation. Just to reiterate, we, we, all, we all want healing, don't we? We all have things in our life that we just wish weren't there. I mean, you, me, all of us. We all have suffering. And all I'm telling you is if, if the end goal for you is to not suffer, and you think that that's, the Bible answers that to its ultimate end in this life, you have missed the heart of the Bible. You can't get very far into any page of Scripture without seeing people suffering, and often for the Lord. You cannot get very far into Scripture without seeing the Apostle Paul suffering, John suffering, Christ suffering in this life. Everyone suffers. Every Scripture testifies that all the godly will suffer in this life. And so I can't read texts like this and ultimately say it's God's will that I shall never suffer. Because when I look at this, I have to come to the logical conclusion like I've said previous. That leper died. He's not here with us this morning in this auditorium. Right? He is not there at the synagogue at Galilee. I've been there. He wasn't there. He was gone. He's dead. And what our hope and our confidence in isn't that that healing in that moment was, uh, was ultimate for him, but that that healing ultimately led him to the re realization that this man who has authority has the authority over life and death and sin. And we're trusting and praying that that leper, once he was healed, recognized his need for a Savior. And he responded by turning from himself and turning to Christ. And that he, although he's not there in Galilee and he's not in here, he'll be there in, in heaven with those of us who have been saved. That's our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope isn't temporary healing. Although it would be nice, and although there are times God grants those things, it is not the norm of the Christian life to be delivered from every infirmity in our life here. But what does ultimately matter is how we humbly approach God and how we submit to His will, whatever the circumstance. And I want you to sum it up this way, point number one. 
You need to show deference to God's will. You need to show deference to God's will. What we need to do is we're going to say, just like the, the lepers, I'm going to say, God, here's, truly, here, here's what I want. Like, I have a lot of pain in my life, and uh, it, it would be pleasant for me if you remove those things from me. But nevertheless, like Christ said, your will be done. Whatever is going to bring you more glory, whatever is going to be a perfect reminder for me to not set my hope on this life, but to set it on life eternal, then if that's the situation and this infirmity is going to be that which keeps my mind on heavenly things, then by all means, according to your will, leave it. Let it remain. Let it be a consistent reminder to me to not set my hope here. That's exactly what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 12, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7 through verse 10, the Apostle Paul says this, To keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, uh, that is obviously Christ, uh, Paul was the last of the big A apostles, right, who was seen Christ and was given this surpassing revelation of who Christ is, brought into the apostolic guild and was given uh, some authority, some particular authority that has not been given uh, since, uh, is this idea that he's now been given this great stewardship and authority to even write much of what we have in the New Testament. Uh, he, and he said, this is why I have this problem, is because I, God doesn't want me to get conceited, so he gave me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Now verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So he said, three times I pleaded to the Lord, God, if you will, can you remove this from me? I have afflictions, and we don't know what the affliction was. We don't know if it was actually an affliction. Some will say perhaps it was the fact that he was blind. He had all these eye visions because when he saw Christ, it blinded him for a while. Maybe he never completely recovered from that. People will say he had struggles with sin. Some would say what well, actually was a demonic presence. We don't know what that is, but what we do know is he had this problem. He had these limitations in his life, and three times he pleaded with the Lord that it should leave him, which is a fine thing to do, whatever situation you're running into. By all means, take it to the Lord in prayer, as the old hymn says. You ought to. But we ought not to say, because I said it, God must do it. And this is what we see here, that he pleads with the Lord. And in verse 9, But the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. Remember what grace is? The unmerited favor of God. And this is what, this is what the Lord says, My unmerited favor is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So this reality of saying, you know what, it might be better for your infirmities not to be healed. It might be better for you to live in pain in this life if in your weakness Christ would be seen as strong both in your life and as a testimony in your life for the world. Then it would be better so often for us to live with our maladies and with our sufferings if it be the Lord's will and if it would glorify and please Him. That's a hard message, isn't it? That'll fill this auditorium up next week, won't it? But it is the truth of Scripture. And then Paul has such a wonderful godly response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. So he's like, I'm not going to complain about this anymore is really what he's saying, isn't it? I'm not going to sit here and complain every time somebody asks me how I'm doing. He's like, well, this thorn just keeps poking me. He says, you know what? No, no more of that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to boast all the more gladly in my weakness. And so Paul would say, you know, in spite of this thorn, God is doing a lot of great things in my life for his glory. You know, in spite 
of my pain, in spite of my weaknesses, God is showing Himself faithful and strong and mighty in my life. What, what a way to speak as a Christian whose hope is in eternity. Amen? Alright, just making sure we're all here. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now you tell me, is that the way that you look at your infirmities and maladies and pains and misfortunes in your life? Do you look at your life the way that Paul just described his circumstances and his pain and his infirmities? Did you look at your life that way? Because I'm concerned that if you don't, you're living your life contrary to biblical truth. There is so many times in our life where we are going to have so much pain, so many illnesses, so much concern. That is just the nature of being a human being. And so our ultimate salvation is those things will be taken away, but our temporary realities is these things are going to haunt us from here until glory. And so the question is not are you going to get sick, not are you going to have weaknesses, not are you going to have these problems. The question is what are you going to do when they come? Are you going to be humble toward God? Are you going to ask the Lord to do according to His will? And even if that means that you are not healed, that in your weaknesses, that you would be made perfect, that you would learn how to boast more gladly in your weaknesses, that the power of Christ may be manifest in your life as a testimony to the people of this world. I mean, come on, church, this is real Christianity. That's countercultural to the world we live in. We, li- we live in a world where you become, you, know, you become an influencer because things go well for your life. I can't imagine you know, uh, somebody being an influencer because things don't go well in their life and all they do is consistently respond in a godly way. People don't want to hear that. That's exactly what we do need to hear, isn't it? It's not even in my notes. This is just, this is just where we are. We need to show deference to God's will. I mean, just what if your life was this, right? Just this, this phrase consistently. If I know God would be pleased for me to do blank, then I would be willing to forego blank, right? And you just fill that in, right? If it would be pleasing for the Lord for me to live in the state that I'm in right now, then I will forego whether it's complaining, whether it's just everything and anything I can do to try to fix this one problem, if, God, if this would please God for me to be faithful in the midst of whatever the situation I'm in, I would rather do that than anything else. Now let's get it into something a little more you know, immediate. If it would please the Lord for me to forsake my own uh, desires and my own uh, emotions and my own feelings of my body right now and to go to life group, I'm going to do it. That's an easy one, isn't it? I'm too tired. Well, would it please God for you to go spend time with your family? Is your church family? The answer is, yes, it will. Right? God would be mighty pleased that you whom he's adopted would go spend time with the other children that he's adopted and you guys fellowship together over his son whom he gave for you. Would that please the Lord? Then I think that I'm going to say, unless I'm sick, or unless I am out of town, I think one thing I can do to please the Lord is show up to my family each and every week. It's a small thing. And I'm saying take that sentence and, and just apply it to everything in your life. And you will find your life aligning with the will of God much more than you currently do. 
Because what I want to do is I want to show deference to God. The leper does it. If you will. I love this. I mean, this is his one opportunity. He is outcast. He cannot be a part of corporate worship in Israel. He cannot, be, he cannot go see his family. He can't do anything. He can't work. He can't make a living. The only thing that he can do when anybody gets close to him is just remind everyone, including himself, I'm unclean. And yet he gets before God and he says, Lord, if you will. If you will. Think about the humility and the deference in that situation. And maybe it should remind us of the deference and humility we ought to have toward our own Lord when it comes to our life. And it is this humility that gives way to God's compassion. Right? And mercy, you do know what mercy means, right? The definition of mercy, right? It's, it's compassion and forbearance, particularly given to those who do not have authority from one who does have authority. And so mercy is the one who has authority given compassion to one who, because of their state, don't deserve it, but yet God would still give it, or the person in power would still give it. That's why people say, please have mercy on me when they've done something wrong and the justice system's coming down on them. What they say is they're pleading the last thing to say, listen, I don't deserve it. You have all the authority in this decision to make the decision. And all I'm saying is, would you give me compassion and forbearance that I don't deserve and I have no authority to obtain apart from your offering it to me free? That's what mercy is. And it is when we would humbly approach God that, uh, that our lives would give way to his compassion I want you to look at verse 3. Verse 3, Matthew 8. As the leper is is humbly, with with, with great deference toward God, approached him, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now again, if if a leper approaching a person is against the law, can you imagine someone touching a leper? Now, this is a great object lesson for everyone who sees Christ, because you remember, the point is Jesus is greater. That's chapters 8 and 9 are proving that Jesus is greater than, in this particular situation, disease. And Jesus is doing something here in particular that Matthew wants to draw our attention to, that he's already done it once in Jesus' baptism. When Jesus went to uh, the Jordan River and was baptized by John with John's baptism of... Say it louder. Repentance, so they can hear us online. Repentance. Okay, why did Jesus need a baptism of repentance? He didn't, did he? He was associating himself with sinful humanity. That's what he was doing. So in him being baptized in the likeness of human baptism for repentance, he was saying, I am in the flesh to come and associate with you that I would be a sufficient substitute for you. So in, in a similar way, we see here, Jesus, as he's touching the diseased man, what he's saying is, not only do I see you, but he's saying, I'm associating myself with the defilement that you're dealing with. And I am doing the one thing that if anybody else in the world did, they would be ceremonially unclean, and they would be potentially infected with the very thing that you have, but I will, in great compassion, in mercy towards you, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to touch you. And Jesus, in great compassion, and in his desire to show the world who he is, says to the leper, that is my will. I will be 
clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. See, Jesus touched and he cured and he cleansed the man, but it did not defile Jesus. So you think of two things. When you see this term, or when you see somebody approaching Jesus when they have infirmities and problems, uh, you often hear them saying that you have been healed. But did you notice that's not the word that we're used here? The word that we use here is cleansed. Cleansed. Because the problem with his disease was it was an impurity issue. The problem was he was defiled ceremonially. He could not worship God. He could not be in the presence of God's people. And it's the same picture that you and I see in our own sin, that when we're defiled and we're stained by sin and we do not have the cleansing righteousness of Christ, we are both alienated from God and the people of God. And it is the same reality that every single one of us in here must realize is in our own life, what we need to do is be cleansed. You know, healing would be nice, but what I really need is to be cleansed. I need to be made pure. I need to be made holy. I need to be taken to a place that I cannot obtain on my own. I need to receive the mercy of God that I would be able to both dwell with God in Christ and I'd be able to dwell with the people of God. That I cannot do if I'm stained with sin that is not atoned for. Like we talked about last week with Isaiah. But here we have Jesus. One touch would cleanse the man and cure him of his disease. This is important because it begins unfolding the picture, if you will, of who Jesus is. And I don't want you to miss it and pray for me that I can explain it well. Here's the problem. Leviticus 5. Leviticus 5. I'll read you chapter, verse 3 and verse 6. If anyone touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, with which one becomes unclean, this is part of this is, is explaining leprosy. He says, and it is hidden from him. So that means maybe you touched somebody with leprosy and you didn't even know it. Right? Said, How could somebody be guilty if they didn't even know? It? Well, they are. They're guilty. Right? It may be a guilt that they didn't understand and they didn't know. There's a word for it that escapes my mind right now. But that he unknowingly touches someone with leprosy. And it's hidden from him. When he comes to know it, and watch this, and realizes his guilt, that you recognize that when we touch that which is unclean and unholy, there is guilt associated with it. There is stain associated with it. And then verse 6, He shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Two things. You have a defiled person that another person touches and becomes defiled. And because now the person who touched the defiled person has now become, has become defiled, they then now have to, in their own stead, bring a sacrifice. And that sacrifice has to be a substitute on their behalf before the priest and ultimately before God. That is just the natural order of sin touching sin. Okay? They're a sinner, they're a sinner, I'm a sinner, I touch him, I'm a sinner, I'm ceremonially unclean. That's, that's the prescription for when this situation happens in Scripture. However, 
because of who Jesus is, and this is, this is the point, right? Because of who He is, He touches the man. Jesus doesn't become defiled. He doesn't become unclean. He doesn't contract any kind of the sinful condition of the leper. Even more than that, He touches the leper, and the leper contracts holiness. Did you hear that? Somebody's not excited about that. That's all right. It's not all right. The leper contracts the holiness of God. And I want you to recognize that says everything you need to know about the person of Jesus Christ and why the leper went to him. The leper went to him and said, you got something I don't. You have power and authority and holiness to cleanse me. Because if anyone else touches me, they're just as guilty as I am. But if you touch me, I'm clean. You see that? Do you see what kind of humility and at least some kind of understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. This is why we talk about the gospel. It's like, well, why are you guys so concerned about getting the gospel right? Because if you don't get the gospel right, you don't get salvation right. If you don't get being unclean and being purified in Christ, and that the very person and work of Christ is at stake here because my salvation's at stake here, and I can't get that right, how do you know you're clean? How do you know that you are justified in the sight of God? It matters that we know the gospel. It matters that we do know the Old Testament law. Wasn't that amazing as we put those dots together and we notice something really amazing about the setting of the Old Testament ritual sacrifices and how Jesus took that and fulfilled it in himself? That's the gospel, guys. And it's for you and it's for me. That he took associated himself with this leper. He touched him and he cleansed him without himself sinning or being defiled whatsoever. You see, it's the kind of authority that Jesus has over these sicknesses and over these diseases that gives us hope and trust that he can deal with the root causes of these things. Right? You and I, how do you know Jesus can, how do you know Jesus can save you? Because somebody told you one day in nursery school? Or because when you read Scripture, He conquered all the things that we don't? That He both said, I will. You will tear this temple down, and in three days I will raise it. That He says, come to me, all who are weary, and all those who labor, and I'll give you rest. And He says, I will forgive you of your sins. He literally says, I come to me, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, who can, who can forgive sins but God alone? And we're like, yeah, that's, that's pretty true. And then he goes and he dies on our behalf. And he is raised and resurrected three days later. Like, those are the reasons why I can say, okay, he can save me from my sins. And it becomes this recapitulation of this story in your life where we must say humility toward God. And I'm going to trust the authority of Christ that who he says he is and what he has accomplished is sufficient for my sin. Point number two, you need to entrust yourself to the authority of Christ. And you must understand that's what the leper did here. The leper did nothing else but with a humble deference went to Jesus and depended on the fact that Jesus could fix his problem, his big problem, his purification problem, his holiness problem. That's what we do when we go to the Lord for salvation and what we do as a Christian when we go to the Lord 
in repentance for our own sins each and every day. That's what we do. Why would I ask for forgiveness for someone who cannot fix the problem for my sin? Why would I go to Christ to solve something that He has not the authority or power to solve? We simply go to Christ because he, it, who He is and what He has done. And this is simply what we see the leper doing. I'm going to entrust myself under the authority of Christ because who He is will atone for the problem that I have. In an illustration, you ever played the game? I know you did. Uh, three people you'd take to a deserted island. Anybody ever played that game? You ever played that game? Yeah, I did in school. And uh, you're thinking deserted island, so you're definitely thinking like Bear Grylls, okay? Like you're definitely probably thinking Rambo, okay? I want Rambo to go in case it's not so deserted, okay? Uh, and then, I don't know, then you're thinking, and you can't say Jesus, okay? Uh, and then you think, I don't know, somebody else. I, I, don't, I don't know another person. Hulk Hogan, I don't know. Because uh, <laughs> somebody needs, anyway, all right. Somebody may need to be choke slammed. Uh, so I, and I'm taking these three people with me. And, and why am I taking them with me? Because I'm hoping that both the knowledge and the power that they have in their respective fields will be enough to get me off that deserted island alive, right? But we need to think a little, a little deeper. What we're really doing is saying and entrusting ourselves to their authority. And then we're saying, well, Bear Grylls has the authority to get me off this island. Rambo has the authority to get me out alive. And Hulk Hogan is going to be there with me. Okay. <laughs> Not sure what he's doing, but he's going to be there. And keep going. What I'm really saying is, and I hope they would have the mercy to take me with them. You didn't think about that in that story, did you, when you were talking about this in school? You just assumed they were going to take you with them. No, you picked them because what you're saying at the end of the day is, I really sure hope however they get off this island, I'm going with them. I didn't even ask if they wanted me to go. I just thought that I'd pick them and they'd take me with them. Well, that's great, but what you're really saying is their authority is the means in which I can be free from this desert island, and I'm trusting their authority will show mercy to me and take me with them. Because without their mercy to extend to me something that I can't obtain on my own, I'm, they're going to go, and I'm just going to watch how to get off of a desert island, but I'm still going to be there. Do you think about that? That's the picture of what we have here with the leper in Christ. That he's saying, I know you have the authority to do it, I know you can do it. The question is, will you show mercy and extend it to me that I may receive it? The picture that we must in our own lives as we entrust ourselves to the authority of Christ, we're saying, I know who you are and I know that you can and I'm asking that you would extend mercy to me. Do you recognize the humility that that takes? Do you now recognize the qualification for mercy is humility? Do you recognize now why a prideful, arrogant individual cannot approach God and receive anything but wrath and justice? Shake your head if you agree with that. Because there is no way to receive something that you cannot obtain on your own if you're going to be prideful and arrogant toward God. But you would receive the just penalty of your own sin. But we, as we humbly approach God and entrust ourselves to the authority of Christ, would receive the mercy of God. And then we want to respond rightly. Isn't that right? We want to respond rightly to God. 
right? He's not the genie in the bottle that I can just do whatever I want with and talk however I want. Like He's the God of the universe who is in his authoritative position, right? And if you don't like authority, that's a whole other sermon. You don't like God. If you don't like authority, you don't like God. You can tweet that or X that, whatever you want to call it. But you want to respond rightly to the authority and the mercy of God. And we see that happening in verse 4. At least we have Jesus' prescription for obedience. Look at verse 4 with me. And Jesus said to the leper, See that you say nothing to anyone. Do you you notice that, particularly in Mark, it's actually called the messianic secret. Do you notice a lot of times Jesus says, he does something, he says, don't tell nobody. You think that's kind of contrary to like what he's actually trying to do, right? You would think that he would be a miracle factory where he does all these things. He's like, go tell everybody everything that I've done for you. You would think in your own earthly mind, that's, that's what you would do, wouldn't it? Why doesn't Jesus do that? Well, this again, I think is really important for us to understand that the miracles were not the main point of Jesus' ministry. If they were, he would be telling everybody to go tell everybody, right? He doesn't. Actually, often he says, don't tell anybody. It's such a theme in, in Mark that they gave it a theological term, the messianic secret. Why is he so secretive about his messianic status? And here's why. He's so secretive about his messianic identity because what he is ultimately trying to do, the real reason that he's here on earth, cannot be fulfilled until he dies on the cross, gets buried for three days, and is resurrected. So anything that would hinder him from getting to point A to point B in the will of the Lord is a hindrance. And so therefore, all these miracles that he's doing, if he attracts all of this attention that would keep him from getting to where God wants him to go, would not be fruitful for his ministry. And so he says, don't tell people. These miracles are not the main point. The main point is that I would go, and I would go die for your sins, I would be buried for three days, and I would be resurrected. And these miracles, what they ought to do is be an attestation of what in the world I'm doing here. And so what you need to see these miracles as, as an authentication of the message of Jesus. And the reason he tells people, don't go tell people, is because he understands his mission is to die for the sins of the world, not put on a miracle show. Sundays at 8 o'clock at the Sea of Galilee. And he says, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, I love this. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. I mean, we see this here. Jesus didn't backhand the Mosaic law here. He said, no, no, no. You're or you are not cleansed, now you need to go do what God's Word tells you to do. Now you need to go to the temple, show yourself to the priest, and offer the prescribed sacrifices that set forth in Leviticus 14, verses 1 through 32. Don't you know? Right? Go love the Lord and go obey His commandments. And ultimately, we see Jesus, particularly in light of the sacrificial law, He fulfilled those. That's the reason you and I don't do sacrifices anymore, because Christ fulfilled that on our behalf, and He became our sacrifice. Yet, because Christ hadn't died for the sins of the world yet, the sacrificial system was well in play at that time. And to obey God would have been for Him, as He was cleansed, to go sacrifice according to the Mosaic law. We all on the same page there? Now, what this also did was a wonderful part of the messianic revealing to the people in one sense was this, that what was the way that you would, in a bona fide uh, official way, prove that a leper was clean? It had to come from the priest. 
the priest had to, upon inspection and upon the regulations set forth in Leviticus 13 and 14, they had to inspect, they had to go through a ritual purification process, they had to sometimes wait seven days, come back, recheck, and do all of these different kinds of steps. And it was at that point where the, uh, the priest would say, you're not clean. Now you can go back to worship with God's people and you can be ritually clean in the sight of God. And so the thing that Christ was set out to do was to show people of his power to save and to cleanse took the obedience of the leper to go do what Christ told him to do. Did you see that? In order for people to see that Christ was the Messiah and could purify and cleanse Ultimately, from our sins, it took the obedience of the person who was purified. Now, we can't necessarily say that he wouldn't have been purified, at least in one sense. If he wouldn't have gone, he still wouldn't have been able to be with his family. He still wouldn't have been able to go worship, and he still would have been ceremonially unclean. However, he still would have been healed from his infirmities. But he would have been a terrible testimony to his family, to his congregation, his assembly, and, and definitely to Christ that he would be healed and yet he wouldn't obey the commands of Christ. But now you're saying, I'm getting too close to home, talking about the way that we say that we're saved and cleansed, but we don't want to follow Jesus and what he calls us to do. And so he calls him to go. so that, And he, he says to go and to show yourself and offer the gift of Moses for a proof to them. Like Jesus wants him to go do what the Scripture teaches him to do as a proof to to the priests and to his family and to the people there that he has encountered Jesus and he has been cleansed. Now, if you can't find some application there, I can help you. But it's going to start with eagerly obeying Christ's commands. It's point number three. You need to eagerly obey Christ's command. We're going to say, I'm clean. I, I'm saved. Even as a Christian, you're going to say, I'm justified. And I, I'm in judicially, forensically justified in the sight of God, when I turned from my sins and placed my trust in Christ, God took a gavel and he, and he hit his gavel down and he said, not guilty, account of the blood of Christ. That is, okay, fine. Yes, I get that. You are saved. But the question is, how are you, as a proof to them, showing that you are saved? showing that you have been purified, showing that you have been cleansed. Because I'm going to tell you something that would have been a terrible proof is if the leper would have stayed out there in the outskirts of the city gates, would not have changed his clothes, would not have combed his hair, would not have went as quickly as possible to the temple to tell people what happened, and would not live according to what a clean, purified person would live like in accordance to Scripture. Am I on your toes yet? It doesn't make sense to then say that I'm purified, but yet to live defiled. And this is why the commands of Scripture that says you must do this, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, applies to people who have been cleansed because we live as a proof of the power of Christ's atonement for our sin who calls us to live a holy life as He is holy and has empowered us to do that through the Holy Spirit. And then therefore... You can, even in a pithy way, okay, if, if we're telling the leper to go, then we need to go, okay? He's going to the temple. Christ tells us, go into all the world and make disciples. That's, that's what we're called to do, isn't it? I don't want unclean, unregenerate people going and making disciples because they're going to make people that look like them. 
So I don't want defiled people making disciples, although we do see that happening, don't we? Right? The undefiled people making disciples, and they make defiled disciples. What I want is I want regenerate people going as a proof to the world, making disciples of all the nations. And what's the second one? Show? I want to show the world the proof that Jesus has cleansed me. What I want to do, you, you put people here that I went to middle school with, and they're going to say, he's doing what in a pulpit? He's saying what? He knows the word propitiation? Like, what? like this guy has been cleansed. This guy has been regenerate. He, this is a whole new creation up there. Have we checked his driver's license? Is that the same guy? I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying, right? That's the life God has called you to live. You have been cleansed, you have been purified, then you need to be eagerly obeying the commands of Christ, like the leper here. And then we would show the world the proof that Jesus has cleansed us, and then, then we would offer, right? We, we see the leper offering, according to Leviticus 14, 1-32, the prescribed offerings, which if you think that obedience to the, the commands of Christ is difficult and tedious, you go read Leviticus 14, verses 1-32, through 32, and tell me what you would rather be doing giving the sacrifice according to the cleansing of a leper or give your life as a sacrifice according to the commands of Christ. I'm going to tell you, I'd much rather be under the grace of Christ, following the commands of Christ and my life than being under the sacrificial system. Go read it when you have some time and you will recognize the wonder and the beauty of Christ taking our place and fulfilling the sacrificial system through his death on the cross. And yet he still calls us in the same way that they offered sacrifices there. We have been called multiple times in the New Testament to offer our lives as a living sacrifice unto the Lord. And it takes a fantastic amount of humility and deference towards God's will to do that. Because there's a lot of things you're not going to want to do to sacrifice your own life. But God has called you to it. And there's a lot of ways that we must entrust ourselves to Christ to say, whatever it is that Christ wants me to do, I'm going to do that because he has authority and the power over the universe. And because of who he is and because of what he's done, there's only one answer in my life, and that is, yes, Lord. Will you pray with me? God, I do pray that this sermon, in so many ways, would be potent to uh, prick the hearts of our, of our congregation, to move our hearts to live according to your word. I pray that as we, we look at the leper, that we see the kind of humility that we must have to approach you, even as Christians, to not approach you how we want to, but approach you how we must, being that you are holy and that we are in great need of your mercy each and every day. So God, I pray for this congregation. God, I pray even as they think of passages in Luke and the rest of the Gospels that said, you know, it is uh, the pride is going to come to destruction. It is the, the humble that are going to be exalted and the prideful, God, they're going to be brought low. And I just pray that we would be a church that would proskuneo ourselves, that we would go low, we would bow to you, that we would not have to be thrusted there upon your authority, that we'd place ourselves there in utter humility towards you. And then in that, God, that you would exalt us at the proper time, that you would utilize us for your glory as you see fit, and that we'd be a church that lived accordingly. God, we do pray in Christ's name. Amen.